1: Hey, Kenneth Kukie. Hello, Jason Aroni. I am all ready for you. I'm, the mic is rolling, and I've got the script in front of me. Let's do it.
2: Are you calling me from? Are you, are you doing the usual setup? Are you, are you on your phone? I
1: am calling you from my brand new watch, and it works perfectly well. So I'm ready.
2: For- Hello. March. I can't really hear you. You're going to have Thank to call me back. March. This isn't good enough. I, no, no, I don't
3: need to call you back.
2: I'm on the watch. Cool. Call- Call me on your phone.
3: let's
1: do it. Let's just keep on I'm fine right now. Like- I am surely not the only person who is the newly proud owner of a smartwatch. And while I still argue over its merits as a phone with my dyspeptic producer, these wrist-sized supercomputers are full of promise, not only as a communication tool, Smartwatches are loaded with sensors that regularly monitor the wearer's movements and body functions. For example, I can check my heart rate and blood oxygen levels when I exercise. So, can the data be used to transform healthcare? Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, an editor at The Economist. Today, we'll be investigating the potential of consumer wearable devices for the future of medicine. From monitoring what's going on inside the body via biosensors.
4: We can measure your core body temperature, your body hydration, blood pressure, metabolites like glucose and lactate. We can measure alcohol in our modules and and wristbands
1: to detecting disease outbreaks.
5: We're trying to figure out ways that data from various wearables can be stitched together and harmonized so that we can identify pathogen threats.
1: And we'll ask, is there really going to be a wearables revolution in healthcare?
6: I think they're going to become increasingly useful to healthcare. Consumers want more information about their health, and they want it in real time, which they can get from some of these wearables.
1: With me to explore these devices is our science correspondent and the co-host of this podcast, Alok Jha. Alok, it is great to have you here.
3: Hi, Ken. Great to be here.
1: Alok, you recently wrote in The Economist that so-called consumer wearables, be it smartwatches or fitness trackers, would be one of the biggest technology trends to watch, pun intended, in 2022.
3: Why is that? So the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the pace of digitization for lots and lots of parts of life. Um, one of the other things that's happened is that many, many people have had medical consultations remotely for the first time during the pandemic, and it's really taken off. So analysts reckon that this is something that will continue to grow, and we're going to get a new generation of wearable health monitors to assist in that process of remote tracking. So at the consumer end, this means wearable devices like Apple Watches and Fitbits that will get more and more sophisticated. But as the technology gets better in 2022 and beyond, what you're going to start to see is that that data that these consumer devices are collecting becomes really useful for medical professionals as well. Now, we should be clear, we're talking specifically about consumer
1: wearables, things like Fitbits or Apple Watches. So what kinds of things can these wrist-sized
3: computers measure? So they can already measure things like how much oxygen there is in your blood, and they can measure your heart's rhythm and electrical activity. So you might be able to detect heart arrhythmias, for example, atrial fibrillations. And in the future, we're gonna see many more capabilities like measuring blood sugar, measuring the amount of alcohol in your blood, things like blood pressure, body temperature, all without actually taking any blood samples. I mean, very professional medical devices can do these sorts of things already, but we're talking about these facilities and features starting to be available for consumer tech in the near future. Before we turn to exactly
1: how that would work, let's look into who might really benefit from it. Which brings me to Jason. Hello the grumpy producer you met earlier.
2: I can't really hear you.
1: Jason has type 1 diabetes. In fact, listeners may remember an episode on insulin in which we interviewed him then too. Now, he uses a patch-like device stuck to his arm to monitor his blood glucose levels. So let's briefly turn the tables and turn the mic on in front of him once again. Jason, you already use a medical-grade wearable of sorts.
2: Yeah, that's sort of true, Ken. So my device is called a flash glucose monitor. It consists of a sensor where there's a little plastic filament that sits just underneath the skin, and it's stuck to my arm. So what you do is you scan a device or a smartphone, and that gives the reading and also a history of readings. Now, there are also devices called continuous glucose monitors, and they work in a similar way. Oh, my God, I see it in your arm. You look like Frankenstein. (laughs) Exactly. So these types of devices, they provide a continuous stream of data rather than the snapshot using the old-fashioned finger prick method.
1: And using this tech is much better for your glucose control.
2: Yeah, it is. So what you can do is you can recognize patterns. So you can see when I eat certain foods or do certain exercises, how my blood sugar responds to that. Another benefit is that all of the data is uploaded to the cloud. When I go to see my specialist. so when I see my consultant or my dietitian at the hospital, they can see all of my data. And we can tailor my diabetes care based on all of this information. So how would a smartwatch that measures your blood glucose be different? Well, in terms of the data that it provides, it probably wouldn't be. But there's a few problems with these flash glucose or continuous glucose monitors. Firstly, it's true that they're much less invasive than doing a finger prick, but it's still a device that's permanently stuck to my skin. So that can get in the way in more ways than you think. I don't have
1: such good imagination, so give me some examples.
2: Okay, so like if I knock it while I'm getting dressed, the device could tear off and I have to apply a new device. And you'd bleed. Some, uh, it doesn't usually cause any bleeding, but I I guess it, it could do. Another problem is the device only lasts two weeks, so I have to change the sensor and change which arm it's on every two weeks, which is only a minor inconvenience, but obviously with a smartwatch you wouldn't need to do that. More importantly, each new sensor and the device that you use to put it on uses a lot of plastic. So every two weeks or every time I knock it and have to apply a new device, there are huge costs in terms of waste and also in terms of the price of the tech. It's very expensive if a smartwatch could do all of this monitoring, presumably it would only be a one-time cost, and it would be a much more sustainable way to monitor blood sugar. But
1: it'll also collect a lot more information that you could layer on top of your blood sugar levels, such as your steps, the weather, your blood oxygen level.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how much the weather would affect my diabetes. But if well, I
1: we've it, never well. measured it, so we don't know. That's the whole point. Collect the data, we might find out a correlation that had evaded us before.
2: That's a good point. So if I go for a run, for example, my exercise stats could be combined with my blood sugar stats and my location and all of these other things to give a fuller picture of how all of these things, like you say, affects my diabetes. Another important point is people with type 2 diabetes. Now, healthcare systems and insurers are less likely to provide them with these flash glucose sensors. But if they had a smartwatch, it could be a really useful way of them having better control over their diabetes too.
1: So for a young, strapping and handsome lad like yourself
2: this must be a godsend. I'm looking forward to what the future holds. So Alec,
3: how would a smartwatch manage to monitor things like blood glucose levels? So the current generation of sensors on your smartwatch can measure things like heart rate by scanning the amount of blood sort of flowing near your wrist. And it does it by illuminating your wrist, with green LEDs. You'll see them if you sort of lift up the back of your smartwatch doing exercise. Green LEDs, because it's the opposite colour to blood on the colour spectrum. So the the blood absorbs the green light. And then the watch also contains optical sensors to detect how much that light is reflected. But next generation sensors, they're not in watches yet, but they're being actively developed. They're more like miniature spectrometers. Now, what a spectrometer does is it shines laser light at something and sees what's reflected back in multiple wavelengths so then it can try and get a fingerprint of the kind of chemicals and other things that are going on in that place it's much much more sophisticated and so they can measure a range of so-called biomarkers functional things that are important to know about your blood or your health generally one of the biomarkers and it's not the only one is how much sugar there is in your blood at any time So the technology can detect other things going on inside the body? Yeah, it can potentially track all sorts of things. I spoke to Andrew Rickman. He's an engineer and the founder of a company called Rockley Photonics. Rockley Photonics is developing some of the most sophisticated next-generation sensors for both medical devices and consumer wearables.
4: In the context of non-invasive health monitoring, we can monitor things from your wrist, from a wrist wearable, We can measure your core body temperature, your body hydration, blood pressure, metabolites like glucose and lactate. We can measure alcohol. And that's just the beginning of the range of biomarkers that we can measure. So it's taking a kind of holistic view of your health and creating a complete biomarker fingerprint of an individual's health on a continuous basis.
3: So how does the technology in the instrument you described work?
4: So it's based on shining infrared laser light harmlessly into your skin and spectroscopic analysis. To be more precise, it's diffuse infrared laser absorption spectroscopy. Now, laser light is swept over a very broad infrared spectrum and the reflected light is detected by the device. And this gives us an absorption spectrum or a spectral fingerprint, which contains all the signature features of the main constituents of the skin, interstitial and cellular fluids and blood from the surface blood vessels. And then we use a machine learning based algorithm to extract the concentrations of the constituents from the composite signal. That gets us to things like body hydration, alcohol, lactate, glucose, other things as well you can measure like urea and creatinine. But it also allows us to measure core body temperature from your wrist, which is quite remarkable. And then the lasers also detect blood flow very, very accurately. And another machine learning algorithm that we use to extract the blood pressure.
3: Can you give me a sense of how accurate your senses are? I mean, how is it different to the, the LEDs that sort of appear on the smartwatches that people might have
4: today? The LED technology that we have in our wearables today doesn't deliver the spectroscopic performance needed. And they work okay for measuring things like your pulse, that's the green LED you see, and blood oxygen, that's a red and an infrared LED. And we've actually incorporated those functions in our modules and and wristbands. But the LEDs just don't deliver the spectral resolution, the spectral range, and the signal sensitivity needed for the additional biomarkers. So how accurate is it? We've developed from the ground up over many, many years a a sophisticated silicon and compound semiconductor photonics chip process. And that's the thing that enables us to design and make a completely new form of of miniature spectrometer. And that spectrometer overcomes the kind of miniaturization problem that, that people have struggled to be able to miniaturize that very powerful instrument on the benchtop into a chip. The funny thing is that we've overcome that miniaturization problem by basically going right the way back to develop a completely new semiconductor process to do it. But also miniaturization in the optical world, in the photonics world, if you get it right, delivers actually better performance. And so we're able to measure from your wrist more accurately your core body temperature than you can with a device that you would stick in your ear or on your forehead or put in your mouth. So
3: perhaps even more accurately than in the clinic, then?
4: Yes. In each of these biomarkers that we're measuring, we are working towards making sure that we can deliver that gold standard. So the gold standard in the case of core body temperature is actually a, a transmitter capsule that you swallow. And that tells you very accurately what your core body temperature is. And that's what we, if you like, calibrate to or correlate to.
3: So, Andrew, um, we have reported quite a lot on medical devices and how they are used by people with different coloured skin and how they can have different responses. And I just wonder how you tackle that, given that the, the crux of the technology involves shining light through skin. And we've seen, for example, in pulse oximeters, that that can be different for people with black skin, for example, compared to white skin.
4: It's it's a great question. I mean, the simple answer is the absorption of menolin in the skin that causes different skin colours that melanin is essentially transparent in the infrared range that all these additional biomarkers that we're measuring are in. So it it isn't an issue. It's an issue in the visible range for pulse oximetry, but it's not an issue in the infrared range that we're, we're operating in.
3: When do you think we might be able to see these devices in action?
4: So the wristband version of the product for healthcare use will be available in 2022, And we are working with our consumer device customers to include the technology in their products in 2023.
3: Okay, so 2023 watches of all stripes may well have these photonic sensors. Andrew, thank you very much for your time.
4: It's a pleasure.
1: So Alec, Andrew spoke about a range of different applications the technology
3: could have. But aside from diabetes, what other medical conditions could it support? Well, it could support any medical condition where it's useful to have a stream of continuous data. So a good example is the diagnosis of people with heart conditions. So people who might suffer from abnormal rhythms of the heart. Normally what cardiologists would do is to send a patient home with a heart monitor and they strap it on for a while and you know, hope that they catch one of these arrhythmias, so one of these events, so that the doctors can analyse it and work out what's going on. But obviously, if in those few days that you have the thing at home, you don't catch an event, then you're going to have to do something a bit more invasive and unpleasant to actually try and understand what's going on inside the patient. Now, if you're wearing a smartwatch all day long, all night long, for days and days on end, just monitoring all sorts of things, and your smartwatch has a built-in electrocardiogram or ECG, then you're going to have huge amounts of data and you will certainly pick up one of these arrhythmias over time. Now, that's useful advice for the doctor, but it's not technically a medical device, because to be classed as a medical device, it needs to do clinical trials. You need to make sure that it's safe. You need to make sure that the data is collected properly and needs regulation, most importantly. And presumably, we could
1: learn a lot more about human health more broadly by
3: studying data from smartwatches. Oh, absolutely. It's not just about health at the individual level. You know, if you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of smart devices on people's wrists monitoring health, uh, body temperature, heartbeats all day long, and you can somehow read that data anonymously, privately, then it becomes really interesting at the population level. And you could spot patterns and trends. For example, you could even build an early warning system for a novel disease outbreak.
1: Huh. And that might have been very useful to have in early 2020.
3: Well, indeed, I wanted to explore this topic in a bit more depth. So I spoke to Leo Wolanski. He's the director of the Pandemic Prevention Institute, which is part of the Rockefeller Foundation in New York. And he told me how, if the technology had been good enough, wearables might have been useful in our attempts to slow down the initial outbreak of COVID-19.
5: What we're trying to accomplish is figure out ways that data from various wearables can be stitched together and harmonized so that we can identify are there abnormalities in some key indicators that wearables capture. Those key indicators are changes in resting heart rates and indications of fatigue, which are mostly captured through wearables by changes in sleep or sleep disruption, or changes in activity, like decreases in steps or overall time being active during a given day. How we develop a network, you know, we're still at the phase of just confirming the research. And these devices are not really designed for public health decision-making. However, some wearables do provide really, really reliable data in this regard.
3: So, essentially, people who have these sorts of devices already and are measuring things like their own sleep or fitness, that data would be sort of anonymized and collected in some way in the cloud. And maybe public health officials could keep a watch over it. And in a city, for example, one day they notice that in a particular part of the city, more people are tired, the resting heart rate is changing, something is going on over there. And that gives them some pre warning that there could be. A potential disease outbreak going on. I mean, that's a very broad brushstrokes way of saying it, but is that about right?
5: Yeah, that is absolutely right. So the way you would hypothetically set up this network is confirm which devices are providing reliable enough signals that they could be repurposed for this kind of work, and then confirm that that data in fact indicates progression of disease. Once we've done that, It would require a type of data sharing, probably a federated one in which different folks who are capturing this data are sharing not the raw data on their actual resting heart rate or their fatigue levels, because that might be sensitive personally, but perhaps anonymized data that just signals, hey, there's an abnormality happening here.
3: Okay, so what kinds of diseases are we talking about here? What kinds of diseases do you think you might be able to surveil using this sort of technology and these sorts of networks? The research
5: today has focused primarily on influenza-like illness, which is categorised as a series of symptoms that a particular individual has. COVID-19 includes uh, influenza-like illness, And other types of severe acute respiratory illness as well can be captured by this this kind of data. I'm sure that there is more emerging research on other forms of illness, but when we talk about commercially available, widely used wearables, the focus is on these really macro level pathogen threats. One of the big benefits of wearables is that these indicators are moving, these changes in resting heart rate or fatigue levels are moving before often individuals even realize they're sick or have other symptoms. And so, especially for a virus like COVID-19 or influenza, where folks might have mild symptoms, might not fully understand that they're sick and be spreaders of virus, this provides a leading indicator for that detection.
3: I wonder, Leo, all of the discussions we've had about this, um, are they just hypothetical at the moment? Or have you done trials or have there been experiments that show that this could actually work, even in a small way?
5: This is exactly what we're working with the Scripps Research Translational Institute on. They've done some phenomenal work at confirming that you can, in fact, detect influenza-like illness in populations without requiring them to provide any symptoms or other indicators. And so it's hypothetical in the sense that it hasn't been fully implemented, but the data's there, the research is there. And of course, there's more research that needs to be done. But I think that we're just a few years away from us being able to actually use this data for for public health decision-making. In fact, in Germany, the Robert Koch Institute has done this kind of work at scale. And that data is already being fed into the public health decision-making that's going on at that institute.
3: If you got this sort of thing set up, would you have to focus it initially on any particular places, big cities, for example, or hotspots of places where there might be spillows of new viruses?
5: The benefits of this is that it doesn't necessarily require a particular location to start. I mean, obviously we would want a more global system for this. And one of the big risks about just starting with wherever the wearables are available is that we will miss huge portions of the global population for whom commercially available smartwatches aren't yet ready to go, aren't affordable, aren't fit for purpose in low or middle income countries. Um, You do bring up an interesting point about locations of spillover. You know, some Researchers have started to think about what does it look like to develop wearables for animal population, So can you provide pigs or chickens, or perhaps even bats with a wearable? And this is very early days and more pie in the sky, but perhaps to your points about how you might do very targeted use of these kinds of technologies for the purpose of monitoring zoonotic illness and, and risk of spillover events there's definitely an opportunity there too.
3: Thank you very much for your time, Leo. Thank you. Alok,
1: let me put a flagpole in the sand and say that I believe that smartwatches will be indispensable as a form of mass disease surveillance in the future. However, that's only provided that there's strong anonymity and that the public buys into the fact that we're going to use it for that purpose. And it'll be a challenge, but I think that we have a moral obligation to
3: actually enable it. I mean, that's correct. If everyone was on board, you could build the kind of system that Leo was talking about there and it would be incredibly useful. But think about the challenges of doing it, right? The data has to be collected. You have to have agreements with all the hospitals and public health centres in a a particular city or a country. They have to talk to each other. They have to standardise all of that. And the word surveillance might put some consumers off. You know, do you want to be surveilled um, just in case some new virus comes along? I mean, it might be a good time now to talk about it because people have been going through two years of hell with COVID-19. So people might be more amenable to that. But, you know, there's still going to be a percentage of people who just don't want that to happen at all. But the point I think that Leo is making, and I think that we should think about is that it's possible something like this would be really useful whether it actually turns up in the real world depends a lot more on politics and how people feel about companies or healthcare infrastructure monitoring them at times of peace when there's no health outbreaks and things if you're willing to be monitored all the time then you're more likely to have someone help you if you have a problem but of course then you're giving up data about yourself all the time um it's a really thorny one but i I like the idea that this is possible On that, we can completely agree. Alok, for now, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken.
1: Consumer wearables do have a lot of potential, but as we all know so often, technology does not live up to its hype. Coming up, what are the challenges in making wearable technology sophisticated health devices that change how medicine works? There's clearly a lot of capabilities and wearable technology, but a major question is whether these devices may really change how healthcare is delivered and experienced, and what challenges need to be overcome. To debate all of this, Alec and I are joined by The Economist, healthcare, and consumer correspondent, Ore Ogunbihi. Hello, Ore.
6: Hi, thanks for having me. Ore, for
1: this week's edition of The Economist, you've been exploring the consumerization of healthcare. That is to say, how the future of healthcare is digitized, personalized, and applicable beyond the hospital. So, how much of a role do wearables play in this revolution?
6: Yeah, quite a big one, actually. So, as healthcare is becoming a bit more consumer facing and healthcare companies are trying to create this like omni channel experience for consumers, it's kind of been centered around digitization and more personalization. And wearables come in like right in the middle of that. It's a logical entry point for big tech companies who are trying to find their way into the industry.
1: What does the market currently look like for wearables?
6: Well, most of it is smartwatches. So Deloitte estimates that 320 million consumer medical wearables will ship globally in 2022. And most of those are smartwatches and fitness trackers like the ones you guys have been talking about. And of the smartwatch market, actually Apple owns about half of that. In 2021, Google acquired Fitbit in a multi-billion dollar deal. Amazon's got something a bit cheaper called the Halo Band, which also does some sleep fitness things. And actually, there's been announcements by Apple that their newer watches will be able to do things like monitor your blood pressure, which Samsung's smartwatch already does. So it's mostly the big tech players who kind of dominate the space, but they're basically trying to prove consistently that their smartwatches have some kind of clinical value for doctors.
1: Now, Alok, you've been a
3: proponent of these devices, but do you have any concerns about their use? With the context that I think it's really important that these devices become available and the sensors are robust and we go through the path of regulation and everything. Um, yeah, there are a few concerns, which is that most medical devices require training to use and to collect data. So transferring them to the home or consumer technology is going to be complicated. And also a lot of this data will be analysed by algorithms. And we know that algorithms have their problems. You're going to analyse data in a way that disadvantages certain groups of people in different ways. If you're going to have many more of these sensors out in the world we need to make sure that the data that comes from them is properly collected properly analyzed and most importantly then what happens at the medical end for doctors and nurses and others who is going to actually be interpreting this stuff they need to know how to interpret it well so i have all of the usual cautions about new technology especially when it comes to people's health
1: We wanted to hear the views from a healthcare professional, so we spoke to Dr. Dusty Narducci. She was a family doctor and is now a sports medicine and eating disorder specialist at the University of South Florida. A lot of Dr. Narducci's patients use smartwatches.
7: I think there's definitely a role for them. I think it's helpful for motivation, definitely like incentives get people going and kind of creates a camaraderie almost, you know, like a, a drive towards physical movement. And then when you're looking at higher level sports, when they're able to measure like, everything from the food that goes in their body to how much they burn to how much they need, how does their performance change in the heat or even females, like during their menstrual cycle, we've been looking at stuff. So, you know, really you can use it in so many different ways.
1: Dr. Narducci has had to monitor her patients remotely as a result of the pandemic. She found that fitness trackers are useful, but she has concerns that they are not medical-grade devices. So some caution is needed. I
7: think it's definitely opening up so many doors in medicine, you know, even outside of physical activity with the pandemic. I've found it very useful to monitor heart Blood pressure, you know, things like that when you can't necessarily be with a patient. But at the same time, those aren't always 100% accurate. Not only that, single data points can never capture everything that's going on inside the body. For an example, anxiety can bump up your heart rate, right? Um, doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with your heart. Sometimes that's a normal response. But uh, patients, don't sometimes understand that. So they're panicking for a week or two. And then that anxiety can cause the heart rate to rise even further. It's this loop, you know, anxiety, higher heart rate, anxiety, higher heart rate, and it just goes on and on. As wearable
1: trackers gain more functions, that'll mean more and more data to interpret.
7: If everybody's coming with all this data, which you do see, I mean, they will bring tons of data. That data is not very secure that people are kind of distributing. They'll come to the clinic That alone takes 20 minutes to explain. You know, as clinicians in the States, I mean, we get 15 minute visits, sometimes max. So that entire visit now has been spent trying to interpret their data, whether or not that's really going to have a benefit in their health. I mean, I really can't defend that, you know? I'd rather focus on other things sometimes or do my own physical exam rather than depending on this device. I love my patients and how much I get back from them. That can't be replaced. There's something just about human interaction that is just not replaceable, even in our current time. But um, I think we do need a combination of everything. It can be part of our future. I don't think it should be all of our future.
1: There are also privacy concerns about the personal data gathered by wearables and medtech devices. To find out more, I spoke to Ryan Kahlo, a professor of law and a tech privacy expert at the University of Washington in Seattle. He told me there are certainly risks to watch out for.
0: Whenever I think about an emerging technology like wearables, I see two kinds of privacy harms. The first is the prospect that the information from the wearable will be used in a way that the consumer doesn't anticipate and doesn't like. And so this might be that the information about their heart rate or how much they exercise would then somehow go into their insurance costs or premiums or otherwise deny them uh, opportunities. The other is this subjective experience of always being monitored. There is always a harm associated with feeling like you're being watched, especially if what is being watched is something as intimate as health data.
1: Now, there's also the risk that the very information can be used to create an inference for other information. What I'm thinking of, for example, would be that movement detection would be able to perhaps work out the PIN number that you type into the keypad. Things like that, where you wouldn't expect there to be a privacy violation, but of course, when you're being tracked in every single way, there's lots of interesting ways in which information can be recorded from you that you wouldn't otherwise think about. How do you police things like that? So
0: it's not just that wearables are becoming ubiquitous. They're becoming ubiquitous at a time when companies, firms have access to data analytic tools that can make a kind of sense of the data that can be surprising. I like to say that artificial intelligence is increasingly able to derive the intimate from the available. Thus, you might be voluntarily giving up information about yourself, about your habits, about your movements, not realizing that inferences can be made about you of a sensitive nature, right? You think that you're just telegraphing your heart rate, you think you're just telegraphing your movements, but you're actually revealing that you've just stolen something at a store or you're engaging in some kind of behavior you shouldn't be. The way that the law protects privacy, often in the United States, but elsewhere as well, it has a kind of dichotomy between the things that you voluntarily commit to a third party and what you mean to keep to yourself. But the ability to derive new insights from existing data are blurring that line and making it so that you don't quite realize what you're saying. So for example, you might be perfectly willing for everybody to read your tweets on Twitter, but unbeknownst to you, a machine learning system is able to identify with reasonably high accuracy whether or not you have postpartum depression. And that comes from a real paper that actually researchers were able to do that. And so there is this breakdown between you know, sensitive and non-sensitive information. And I think the law is still playing catch up. So how can these harms
1: be minimized?
0: Well, depending on what legal regime you're within, there may be certain kinds of restrictions or obligations. And so one layer is simply making sure that the folks that are creating these devices are complying with the law. But in the United States, at least, all the law basically says, or mostly what the law says, is that... You just can't make false promises to consumers. And so as long as somewhere, maybe in a long terms of service or privacy policy, you tell the consumer what it is you're going to do with the data, then you can get away with it. But we do have a toolkit that helps to minimize the kinds of harms associated with emerging technology that uses data. And, And they include things like data minimization, collecting only that data that you actually need to do the service, limits on retention. Uh, So how long you keep the, the data around and just in general, trying to give the consumer an adequate mental model of what the data is and how it's being used.
1: Overall, in a world in which data is being shared with big tech all the time from our smartphones and personalized ads and all that, how much do you think users really care about a little bit of extra data coming from our smartwatches?
0: Sure. Well, I'm sort of tempted to, to ask in return how much that, that frog cares that the temperature has gone up just a tiny bit. I mean, I think it's, you know, one of the things that everyone in the world has begun to understand in light of the global pandemic that we're living through is the notion of a risk budget. You can't keep yourself perfectly safe from exposure, but you can budget your risk and invest it in places that really matter to you. I think what we're coming to appreciate is that there's nothing that's free. (laughs) There's nothing that's uh, very few instances where letting go of your privacy does not come with risk or cost.
1: And the number is 97%. While you were actually answering that last question, I checked my blood oxygen level. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I don't (laughs) know if any hackers are going to use that information or somehow if my privacy will be violated by that. But it sure is interesting to talk to you about these issues. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Now, hold on a second. My heartbeat went down to 72 beats per minute, but it had been elevated during the interview at around 80, which I can only ascribe to the fact that either I was a little bit nervous and therefore a little bit tense and all of that, or I was in love. So (laughs) I'll let our listeners figure that out. Ori, do you think that the privacy concerns surrounding wearables are legitimate?
6: I think they're legitimate, but you've got to weigh them up against what you gain from personalization. So it's a little bit of a trade-off. You have to sacrifice some degree of privacy for the personalization that you want. Um, if we want healthcare to be more consumer-driven, to be more personalized, to be more specific, which is really useful for people living with chronic conditions, for example, also people who are battling like rarer diseases and might struggle to explain their symptoms to their doctors. So I think we do have to ask who is holding all the health data. So the same big tech players I was talking about earlier are also getting involved in the health data side of industry. So Amazon Web Services, for example, now has a healthcare arm. Microsoft bought Nuance and is also kind of getting into that health IT on the back end. And I think, well, these might not necessarily be companies that have proven that they can be trusted with such sensitive health data. And that's maybe where we should be asking the question, but not whether or not we should be giving up less of it. Because if you want personalization to come in the industry, we're going to have to give up some of our privacy, unfortunately. So I suppose the final question
1: is how useful these tools are, whether it is pure entertainment or whether there's something malicious about it or that it's going to be vital for public health. Let me throw that one to you first, Ori.
6: I think they're going to become increasingly useful to healthcare. Consumers want more information about their health and they want it in real time, which they can get from some of these wearables that are monitoring them on a number of different metrics. Remote monitoring is also really useful for doctors in terms of allowing them to properly understand symptoms and not just run on the kind of subjective statements that you give them. You know, as long as that information is standardised, I think there's a lot that we can do with it. They're also becoming so much more affordable. I mean, Amazon's Halo Band is literally about $100. So it's not just things that are kind of for tech buffs. These are things that can kind of be used a bit more universally. Healthcare has been one of those industries that was kind of the last to digitise. And you have consumers who have such high expectations of the industry because in travel, you get really personalised, really data-driven experiences and healthcare shouldn't really be any different. So I think it's important that healthcare is going in that direction, um, as long as the information that you're getting from your wearables is accurate, and eventually, hopefully, standardised, and like Alok mentioned, also regulated. So it's doing what it says it actually does.
3: I would agree with all of that, All right, And also, I'd flip the question around. I mean, these things, health monitoring on your wrist is inevitable. It's coming, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And my question would be, why would you not want it? You know, the human body to a large extent, is just a bit of a black box in terms of what's going on in there and having information that is reliable and, um, you know, properly measured is useful. You know, there are all the caveats about making sure that the data is collected properly and that the medical regulations in force and all of that. But um, sensors on your wrist uh, that can do very sophisticated things if they work. I mean, it's just the latest in the long line of technologies to measure what's going on in the body. You know, I'm sure people thought thermometers and stethoscopes and blood pressure monitors were a bit odd when they first appeared as well. But they're kind of just part of medical devices, not only in hospitals, but at home as well now. And I think that that's only a good thing.
1: I completely agree. All right, Alok, thank you very much.
6: Thanks for having me, Ken. Thanks, Ken.
1: Healthcare technology has rarely been explicitly designed for consumers until now. And that's what makes this latest round of innovation so potentially transformative. Not only that, the pandemic has forced an unprecedented consumer adoption of digital health tech and has inspired people to take their health into their own hands. Changes that are likely to stick. And as a data nerd, I look forward to seeing where consumer wearables take us, with myself being a part of this revolution. Thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read Ori's brilliant piece on how a wider tech boom is changing the business of medicine at Economist.com or in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Kenneth Kukye, and in London, where I'm constantly checking my ECG, because I can, this is The Economist.